So these weren't beings that merely looked like humans. These were human beings. But again, these weren't your typical human beings. In fact, one of them was God. But here in Genesis, we see God in human form. And who does this sound like? Well, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. Over the last several episodes, I've been surveying the book of Genesis. So up to this point, we've seen several things. The creation of all things, the fall of mankind, God's promise to Satan that he would defeat him through the offspring of the woman. We've seen a global flood that destroyed all living things except for Noah, his family, and the animals on board the ark. We then saw after the world was repopulated, God called Abraham to the promised land, and he made a covenant with him. You see, God is moving forward his plan to destroy Satan through the offspring of the woman. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that's why God rescued Noah and his family. He had to rescue someone in order to keep his promise to Satan that he would defeat him. We also see that God made a promise to Abraham that he would give him many offspring through a son. Abraham did try to help out God by having a son through Sarah's servant, but God's promise was through his own wife. God then instituted the covenant sign of circumcision. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4 that God didn't institute this sacrament in order for Abraham to become righteous by fulfilling the sign. God instituted the sign to show that Abraham was counted righteous by faith. And that means he was counted righteous before circumcision, not after. But we saw that in Genesis chapter 15. God made a promise to Abraham and he believed God and God counted his faith as righteousness. And this happened years before God instituted the covenant sign of circumcision. So after a 13-year gap, God revisited the promise to Abraham. And that leads us up to chapter 18. And here we see three men visit Abraham. But there's something different about these men. Look at how Abraham responds to them. He bows down, and then he calls one of them Lord. Well, who are these men? Well, the first thing to establish is that these were human beings. First, Moses, the writer of Genesis, called them men. Second, Abraham offers them water to wash their feet. And third, he has Sarah and one of his young men prepare a meal for them, and they ate. So these weren't beings that merely looked like humans. These were human beings. But again, these weren't your typical human beings. In fact, one of them was God. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 10. The Lord said. But also look at what he said. About this time next year, I will visit you. Now take a look at Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. So one of these men was God. And this is what we call a theophany. A theophany is appearance of God in some physical form. For example, in Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. But here in Genesis, we see God in human form. And who does this sound like? Well, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us to remember that God is not limited by creation in the same way that we are. He can appear in human form before the birth of Christ. And that's what he did. Okay, so one of them was God. Who were the other two? 
Well, chapter 19 tells us, The men set out from there, and they looked to Sodom. Then the two of them leave for Sodom, and the other remains with Abraham. But look at the very first verse of the next chapter. The two angels went to Sodom. Not two angels, but the two angels. This is stated immediately following chapter 18 when the two men went toward Sodom. The other two men were angels. They were angels in human form. Now, let me go back to verse 10 of chapter 18. Take a look at what God said to Abraham. He said he would visit about this time next year and Sarah would have a son. And though Sarah was in the tent behind them, she was listening. And when she heard what God said, she laughed to herself. After all, she was old and unable to have children. In fact, Moses says the way of women had ceased to be with her. But God knew her response, so he replied by saying, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Then he told Abraham that he would visit about the same time next year and she would have a son. And then Sarah lied to God. She denied laughing, but God said, Nope, you laughed. And then the two men went toward Sodom. And the Lord informed Abraham that he was going to pass judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, when you look at verses 20 and 21, it's difficult to see where God said he would pass judgment. However, Abraham understood what God was going to do. As the two men set out for Sodom, Abraham stood before the Lord. We see that in verse 22. And as Abraham stood before the Lord, he interceded for Sodom. He pleaded with God that he would not destroy the city on behalf of the righteous in the city. And God conceded. On behalf of the righteous, God would spare the city for their sake. And Abraham must have known the situation. He pleaded from 50 righteous all the way down to 10 righteous. And each time God said that he would spare the city on behalf of the righteous, even if there were 10. Before we move to the next chapter, I want us to see this parallel between Abraham and Christ. Abraham interceded for the people of Sodom. Christ intercedes for us. Take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Here, Paul tells us that Jesus is interceding for us. And this is a present tense ongoing action. Think about that. At this very moment, Jesus is interceding for you. So here, God again is giving us a glimpse of Christ as Abraham is a likeness or a parallel of him. However, where Abraham pleads for the people based on their righteousness, Christ pleads for us based on his righteousness. So, Abraham is a picture of Christ, but not a perfect representation. Moving on to chapter 19, we now see the depth of sin and corruption in Sodom. This is the reason why God planned to pour out his judgment on them. So, in verse 1, the two men, who were angels, arrive in Sodom. Lot greets them and invites them into his home for the night. Now, do you remember who Lot is? This isn't the first time that we've seen him. This is Abraham's nephew who came to the promised land with Abraham. Well, initially, these two men, the two angels, they said that they would stay the night in the town square. However, they decided to stay with Lot after he pressed them. I'm sure Lot knew the dangers of staying in the town square, as we will soon see. Later that night, the men of the town surrounded Lot's house. And Moses notes here that it was nearly the entire population of men, both old and young, came. And what did they want? They wanted Lot to bring the two men out that they may know them. Well, what did they mean by know, to know them? 
To know here doesn't mean to have a conversation to better understand someone or get to know somebody better. Know here is a sexual term. They wanted to engage in homosexual activity with them. Pretty much the entire male population wanted that. And notice how Lot describes their behavior in verse 7. He begged them not to act so wickedly. He called their behavior wicked. The fact that they wanted to engage in homosexual activity with Lot's visitors is the fruit of their sin and corruption. And this is the reason that God set his sight on Sodom to destroy it. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. And again, Abraham understood what God was going to do because he interceded for the city asking if God would destroy the city if there were 50 righteous people. And remember, it went from 50 all the way down to 10 righteous people. And what we're going to see is that there weren't even 10 righteous in Sodom. In fact, there wasn't a single righteous person. And we see that because the men of the town came to know Lot's visitors. After Lot begs them not to act wickedly, he offers his two daughters. But the men didn't want his daughters. They wanted the men that Lot took into his house. And because they were dissatisfied with Lot's suggestion, they were about to deal more harshly with Lot. So the angels pulled him back into the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men at the entrance of the door with blindness. The men groped at the door till they wore themselves out. And then the angels told Lot to get his family out of town because they were about to destroy the place. So Lot told his sons-in-law, who were about to marry his daughters, that the Lord was going to destroy the city, and they needed to get out of the place. However, the sons-in-law thought he was joking. Then the angels urged Lot to take his wife and daughters and get out of town. And Lot lingered. He didn't leave immediately. So the angels seized him, his wife and his daughters, and got them out of the city. At this point, I want us to focus on a phrase in verse 16. The Lord was being merciful with Lot. There are two things I want to point out here. First, notice that God was merciful to Lot, but not his sons-in-law. After all, he brought Lot out of the city, but not the sons-in-law. This is a very important theological concept. God is not merciful to every person. Several hundred years later, God would tell Moses that he will be gracious and merciful to whomever he chooses. Take a look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. There God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is counter to what we've heard for so long in evangelical churches throughout the United States. Most denominations teach that God is gracious and merciful to everyone. But this isn't true according to God's own words. So first, we must see that God was merciful to Lot, but not his sons-in-law or the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But second, God was merciful to Lot's wife and daughters through Lot. Notice again that verse 16 says that God was merciful to Lot, but says nothing about his wife and daughters. Yet we will see that God leads them out of the city. And this is also a very important theological concept. We aren't saved by our actions. We're not saved by our good works or obedience or even our faith. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone. And even our faith is a gift from God. We don't come to believe God by our own cognitive abilities. So God makes us alive with Christ based on his grace alone. And the Holy Spirit works in us faith. 
That's why we believe. You see, we're really saved by our union with Christ. God is merciful to us in Christ. He is our representative, and there's no mercy outside of Christ. Now, coming back to Genesis 19, the angels allowed Lot to escape to Zoar, which is located in the southeast corner of the Dead Sea. And after Lot arrived in Zoar, God rained fire and sulfur down on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed the cities and the people there. But Lot's wife looked back and turned to a pillar of stone. Well, what does that mean? Well, it appears that Lot's wife was actually transformed into a pillar or a statue of salt. John Calvin says, Moses here records the wonderful judgment of God by which the wife of Lot was transformed into a statue of salt. Now listen to what Robert Harbach says. She becomes a public monument of God's wrath against covetousness and covenant breaking. Now, perhaps this is a bit much to believe. She didn't turn into a pillar of salt. This must be some metaphor for something else. Well, the bottom line is this. Lot's wife died, suffering the consequences for disobeying God. Take a look at verse 17. Escape for your life. Do not look back. You see, she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. So why did this happen to Lot's wife and not you and me, even though we still sin? God will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, and he will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. Now, does this mean that Lot's wife was condemned to hell for her action? Well, I don't think so. I believe Calvin is helpful here. Listen to what he says. When, however, it is said that Lot's wife was changed into a statue of salt, let us not imagine that her soul passed into the nature of salt. For it is not to be doubted that she lives to be a partaker of the same resurrection with us, though she was subjected to an unusual kind of death, that she might be made an example to all. Lot's wife died that day, like the rest of us will, but her soul lives, waiting for the same resurrection as us. Now, God did withhold his mercy from the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He poured out his wrath and destroyed the cities, judging them for their grave sins. Now, before we move on to the remainder of the chapter, look at verse 29. God rescued Lot because he remembered Abraham. Like I mentioned earlier, Abraham is a picture of Christ. Why did God rescue you? Did he do it because you deserve it? Well, of course not, because you don't deserve it. He saved you for Christ's sake. Once again, you are saved by your union with Christ, not your obedience, good works, or even your faith. So God saved you because he remembered Christ who intercedes for you and is your advocate. We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, and 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So now let's move to verse 30 and following. And before we begin, Moses includes this section to set the stage for what will come much later in the story. So Lot left Zoar and moved to the hills with his daughters. And his oldest daughter thought that there wasn't a man with whom they could have children. So she devised a plan to ensure offspring for their father. On separate nights, each daughter got Lot drunk and they laid with him. And each daughter got pregnant by their father. And through the oldest daughter came the Moabites. And through the youngest daughter came the Ammonites. We won't see the Moabites or the Ammonites for several hundred years, but the Israelites to whom Moses was writing knew who they were. Look at what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, 
even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Did God say this because of their illegitimacy of their forefather? No, God tells us why he said this in verse 4. They did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. Moses is referring to the event in Numbers chapter 22. Now, is God completely ungracious to all Moabites? Well, absolutely not. Take a look at Ruth. Now, I'm not going to review the whole story here. You can read that on your own. But what I want you to see is that Ruth was a Moabite. We see that in Ruth chapter 1 verse 4. Now, take a look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. You see, Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 is the genealogy of Jesus. So, what we see in verse 5 is that the man Jesus is descended from Ruth, a Moabite. Ruth is in the line of Christ, and she's actually named in Matthew chapter 1. And when you read Ruth's story, you will see that God was extremely gracious to her. Now, coming back to Genesis, we see several things in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. We see that God is a covenant-making God and a covenant-keeping God. He restated his promise to give Abraham a son through Sarah. And we're going to see that he's going to fulfill that promise. We also get a glimpse of Jesus in a couple ways. Here we saw God in the flesh, and that's who Jesus is. But not only that, Abraham parallels Jesus. For example, he interceded for the people of Sodom very much like Jesus intercedes for us. But we also see the terrible judgment of God. He poured out his wrath on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, God is a holy God and a just God, and he must punish sin. But we also see the marvelous grace of God. Lot didn't deserve to be rescued by God. He was just as sinful as the rest of the people. Yet God had mercy on Lot and rescued him. And this means that Lot deserved what the people received, but God withheld his judgment on Lot. He had mercy on him. As I conclude here, we see God continuing to move his plan to defeat Satan forward. Yet he's doing it slowly. God is not in a hurry. But through Abraham, Jesus will come to defeat Satan. God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah give us a glimpse of the judgment to come on Satan. Those in Christ don't have to worry about the terrible wrath of God because it has been poured out on Christ. He is our Sodom and Gomorrah, and we are Lot being rescued from the wrath of God. Thank God that he's a promise-keeping God. He promised Satan that he would defeat him, and nothing can stop him from fulfilling his promise. And we've seen up to this point that God is moving forward on his plan. Though it will take a long period of time, Jesus will come to take the full wrath of God on our behalf and issue the death blow to Satan with his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus is victorious. God fulfilled his promise. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, Faith comes by hearing.